Hi, I'm Steve Leard, and welcome to Cover Meeting, the book cover design podcast where we speak with designers about their work, the industry, and everything else in between. This is the last episode of season one, so make sure to stick around at the end for some words on that, and also when you can expect more episodes. But first, we're joined by Tree Abraham, a brilliant book designer, illustrator, and writer. Tree was born and raised in Ottawa, Canada, before studying graphic design in the UK and interning at various publishers in London. Tree then went on to work in New York City, where she's been ever since, both freelancing and working for Abrams, Bloomsbury, and Grand Central Publishing. Tree is now an art director for Amazon Publishing. Tree is also a writer, and her first book, Cyclettes, came out in 2022, and her next book is due out towards the end of 2025. I really love speaking with Tree, as she's had such a unique experience with cover design and publishing, having studied and interned in the UK before working back in North America, and also being an author in her own right. So I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Tree, thanks so much for taking the time out to to speak with me. On the podcast, I've, I've tried to make sure every episode is a bit different from the next in some way. Um, and, and you've had quite a unique experience that allows for lots of different discussion points. Um, so just to touch on your journey for a moment, um, your first degree was in international development and environmental studies. Is that right? Yes. And you did that before choosing a different path to study graphic design. Um, what What was your reason for taking that change in direction? I think I was always um, torn growing up between um, sort of the influences in my life that were much more focused on diplomacy and law and uh, doing something Um, that was a little bit brainier because that was just the environment I grew up in, in like a government town with parents who understood that as like um, what one does when you're strong academically uh, to be challenged. And then I, and then like the side of myself that was very evidently an artist and a designer um, all through the ways like I was expressing myself in my free time as a child, um, and I was torn between these two things, but because I wasn't in an environment where I thought there was like an avenue to be an artist as a profession, um, when I was applying for schools, I ended up being pushed into, um, you know, pursuing my passions for the world um, and issues that I felt really were like pressing in the coming um, generation. And I did that and and that in my, I want to say third year of university, I met um, a student of graphic design while I was like volunteering on a farm one summer. And she was talking about what they did in uni. And it just sounded so incredible. Um, and uh, along with that, like every time I was doing like kind of a um, work work position um I ended up doing graphic design incidentally, like I would volunteer at an NGO and then I'd become like their in-house graphic designer. Uh, And I was always like kind of dabbling in art on the side. And then I was reading this book on sketchbooks 
uh, like we were just like showing the interiors of different creative people's sketchbooks. And there was a um, feature on Isaac Tobin, who at the time was a cover designer for University of Chicago Press. And so I was like researching him online just because I really loved his sketchbook the most. And then I discovered he was a book designer and I had obviously never heard of what book design was. And it just like instantly became the thing that I fixated on and felt like I wanted to do. And so um, I finished that degree, which was sort of um, a five-year degree and kind of went straight from that into a graphic design degree um, with the intention of becoming a book designer. And that never really changed, even though I sort of explored other um, design avenues in undergrad. Yeah. That's really interesting that you had that had that focus and we'll definitely come back to that. But I imagine a lot of the people listening kind of took the art and design route like mm-hmm. straight off the bat. Um, but you do meet people occasionally who did something else before going into design. Uh, has studying something else prior to switching to design like helped you in, in any way that that now relates to your work? I mean, I just I didn't understand the world coming out of high school. Like I had no exposure to anything. And the first couple years um, of my first degree were mind stretching for sure, because I was l- being introduced to um, in international development. You're, you're introduced to systems and how like you as a person on the ground scale up to like world problems happening somewhere else and understanding like all of the factors at play in that, like history and economics and sociology and uh, politics. And so I think it was a really good primer for me to situate myself. And now coming into like books and reading other people's stories, the way that I perceive their experiences or find a connection between me and them, I think, um, is something that like, I maybe wouldn't have had the maturity for if I had just gone straight into aesthetically focusing on my craft. Um, and also it benefited me practically, like, because once I got into, um, my design degree, I had already been in, in a school that, um, like part of the educational process was getting real world experience. So I was working in development, um, all through my degree. And like, by the time I graduated and by the time all of my, um, peers graduated, we were really set up to, to have like full fledged careers. And we had, um, CVs that were robust. And so when I, when I started in, um, the UK studying, design, I was like really quick to get internships and placements and jobs in my field and get a lot of experience. And that sort of like jump started a career um, before a lot of the people I was graduating with who didn't know what they wanted to do. Like having that per- sense of purpose and drive really like um, helped me like snatch up opportunities that no one else was focusing on. Yeah. And I know from reading your book, which we'll definitely come on to later, um, that you've always loved to travel or live in different places. Um, and you, like you mentioned, you you chose to study graphic design o- over here in Brighton. Um, what what made you pick the UK to study in rather than somewhere in Canada or the US? I did a very rigorous sweep of the entire world when I was deciding where to do my <laughs> degree. Um, and there were a lot of factors at play 
um, principally like financial factors because I was self-funding. Um, and that kind of eliminated the U.S. as an option because I, I think it's penalizing like their, their tuition fees, even though their design schools are incredible. Um, and they really, I think the networks you gain access to um, are so invaluable. But it was just to study art and come out of school with 100K in debt just didn't seem reasonable to me. No. Um, it's going to put a lot of people off, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And so I applied to schools in Canada, but I knew that the Canadian design um, industry is much smaller and um, their ambitions are are much more sensible. Like they're, they're not as interested or there isn't as large a market for kind of like experimental cutting edge design. Yeah. And so, I mean obviously Europe is like, is at the extreme opposite end of that. Um, and I, I applied to a few UK schools and got a, a partial scholarship to Brighton. So I was able to afford to like, to pay, um, and come out of school without debt. Uh, and it, I mean, I, I felt like it was destined to be because I love Brighton. I, I yeah, love the town. Place. Yeah. I just felt, um, it's, 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 I love this, the size of Brighton. It, it's, it's really it's quite compact and it's obviously, you know, beautiful being next to the sea, but also you've got that um, ability to get into London really quickly as well. It's, it's really ideally placed. It's so brilliant. And especially, I think, um, to study in a place where it's not, it's it's so dense with creativity, but it's not overwhelming in like scale. So you can really focus on your work. Um, yeah. And have the, that connection to London was uh, something I definitely made use of. Yeah. You're now based in New York and you've obviously worked in, in Canada. Um, but during your time at Brighton, you kind of intimated, you, you you managed to intern at a few different publishers in London. And I guess there's not many designers who've had that first-hand experience of publishing in both the UK, but also North America. Um, for you, were, were there any were there any obvious differences between working in those different territories, either creatively or, or culturally? Oh, well, I do think that every publishing house is its own little microcosm. Um, but I think, and I, I can't really speak for, I think this can be true for some New York-based publishers, but my initial experience in the UK was one of um, like analog craft. I, one of like the most, um, influential work placements I had was as a junior designer with Suzanne Dean at Vintage Books. And uh, I think like, like I have not been anywhere else that um, has such high regard for, for the fine arts and for like going back to um, original source material. They have a whole bookshelf where they collect old type specimen books that they scan in and I would be like cutting out individual letters to typeset like copy and they would take like field trips to museums and archives and go and scan like historical documents and there were there would be designers that would be like building little paper dioramas and photographing them for covers like it's, it's just a very tactile place and there was just so much art and collaboration with um, people outside the book design world who were specialists in certain, um, crafts. And I, and that has like, and that alongside like that similar sort of ethos at university of Brighton, um, really set me on like kind of a distinct path in my own, like approach to book design. Yeah. And, and knowing 
the way you work and and the way you you approach kind of visual content i can imagine it was amazing for you to kind of see that coming out of university and seeing it being applied literally in the workplace as well and that really must have encouraged you to what was possible with with book cover design yeah i mean my first placement was um as an assistant to a freelance graphic designer, Mark Swan, who was based in, he was based in Brighton at the time. Um, and he also in the studio, there was so much play. Like, like he would, he was, he was doing these like high graphic, like thriller covers, but he was just like taking a little toy and spinning it on the ground and photographing it and then transforming it. And just being like so proximate to people who were like, a decade or two older than me and then still maintain that sense of like play and experimentation was very inspiring. And I think now when I feel stuck, sometimes I like have to rekindle like my roots. Um, And of course, like, I think there are obviously stylistic differences between North America and the UK. Um, And I was always, I think, more oriented towards American design. And and that kind of put me at odds often with my tutors when they were reviewing my work, um, that it just didn't feel like I, I think I'm much more inspired by like the minimalism and Scandinavian design now than I was at that time. Um, So there's always been like a tension in my where my gaze is fixed, um, that's allowed me to sort of like straddle all the worlds uh, in a way that feels comfortable. Yeah. Breaking into our industry is, is, is sometimes seen as is quite hard. And uh, most pe- people you speak to kind of attribute it to there being a big element of luck um, quite often. But I, I've heard you describe your own experience that it that it required that focus and persistence and it, it didn't just happen by accident. Um, is that is that how you saw it? Because I think you reflecting on on that uh, might be useful for any students listening. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I don't see. I mean, I I think the the part that is luck is like you never know if someone's gonna pick up your application or respond to your email, and you kind of have to rely on like that. Um, intersection of like your talent at the time and what the opportunities are to align. Yeah. Being in the right place at the right time, isn't it? Exactly. But I don't feel like there's anything accidental about where I ended up. I worked incredibly hard to put myself at the forefront of every opportunity to just increase the odds. Like I entered in all the categories, all the years of uni, the Penguin Random House Design Awards, um, which I usually, you know, shortlisted or won to some degree. And, um, every time a a design studio or designer would come to our uni that had any relation to book design, I would email them afterwards. And it was like each opportunity, like that was presented to, to, to me, I can draw a direct line between how that person led me to the next opportunity. And it was a, it was that combination of like consistently building out my portfolio, setting myself my own cover design briefs alongside emailing everyone all the time and, and, you know, saying no to maybe a vacation or, um, something like more leisurely to take up whatever kind of internships or short-term placements were, were available. Um, and like, I mean, Mark Swan, it was the reason I got my first internship in London at Little Brown because he worked with um, 
like different in-house ADs and, and like I had a portfolio and so he'd send along my portfolio and then I could take an interview. And so I I think it really is about being driven and knowing what you want and then, um, preparing yourself so that when the opportunities come along, you are ready. Ready to take it. Yeah, I think that's that's a really important lesson uh, for, for students to learn as well, I think, because sometimes you do meet students and it feels like sometimes there's a hesitancy to, to kind of push themselves into that, to, into those opportunities. So I think the, the point you're making of when an opportunity arises, just to take it, you know, you, you will you will learn something, you will get something out of it. I think that's a really important message for for any for any students out there listening. Um, so, so you, when when you had your time at, at Brighton and interning in, in London, after that you you got an internship in in New York, um, where I believe you've been ever since. Um, for for a lot of people who've who've never experienced it, living and working in New York feels like a, quite a romantic idea. Um, What's the what's the experience been like for you since since being there? It's gone through phases. I think when I first got there, I felt really high and overwhelmed. Like you're just pulsating with the city, um, and you have all these reference points of things you've watched over the years, and you just want to have every cinematic experience. And the city definitely, I think, delivers. Like its energy. And oddity is um, world renowned, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's also constant. <laughs> like, there, there is not a lot of like um, quiet um, yeah. reflection time and things like that. Yeah, it's it's hard to it's really hard to to claim your own rhythm that's independent from what the city is asking of you. In my opinion, I feel like very prone to keeping up um, and trying to make use of this amazing place. And you know that some of the most creative, interesting people in the world reside here. And so there's this like, like disappointment, I think, when you're not having having experiences that are aligning with what you know is should be available to you. Um, and certainly I think being here for the first part of my career was what opened doors because I would attend events and meet people and through our conversations that would lead to like, like new jobs or, um, new creative collaborations. And so it, yeah, it, it is a place that for a time I felt like I would never want to leave. Like I felt so much love for it. I almost felt trapped by that <laughs> relationship. <laughs> and now I think I'm older and, and I mean, I, I listening to um, your conversation with people who've like left the city of London yeah. and are living like a, a bucolic life. Like I definitely fantasize about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, I've only visited New York as a, you know, for a for a short holiday and things like that and um well you know better than the most there's a big difference about visiting somewhere and and living somewhere um so it's really interesting to to get your take on it uh, and kind of going back to what you mentioned a little bit earlier um about the kind of canadian design scene and, and publishing scene um does does New York kind of have a, a magnetism within North America for designers, like putting them to experience um, 
working and living in New York in the same way that sometimes that's felt like that with London kind of in creatively, but also in the, in the kind of publishing world. As a Canadian, do, is New York sort of like a star in our eye? <laughs> yes, um, it is. But I, I mean, yes, there is this infatuation with New York um, that everyone I knew growing up had. But I think if I were to have ever said to anyone that my dream is to live in New York while I lived in Canada, they would have laughed and dismissed me. That's not a dream that one should have. It it doesn't, it's another country. Like it seems completely inaccessible. And I, and I know a lot of like Americans who grow up, um, fantasizing about moving to New York, but that's actually something that's very achievable. Like I meet lots of people who kind of were not wondering if that would ever work out for them. Like they have a clear path to it, but because of like immigration, that's not really something that I thought would ever be um, possible for me. And I think it caught me off guard that I ended up here. It was sort of, I was living in, I was living in the UK and thinking I was going to be able to graduate and get a visa and continue to work in London. And that just didn't happen. And so very suddenly within like a month of graduating, I kind of took up the first opportunity I had, which was in New York. And so it wasn't, there wasn't enough time to to process it. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Not only have you experienced working in the UK and North America, but you've You've had an all-round experience when working within within publishing. You've gone from intern to junior, middleweight, senior, and and now art director. But you've also freelanced like all uh, during that time as well. Um, has the experience of being on different sides of the process, both in and out of house, like informed your role as an art director that you're that you're currently in? Yeah, it's funny, like listening to the conversations you've had with um, freelancers and the questions you're asking about what's going on in-house, like I don't have those questions because I've been in enough spaces um, that I feel like I have a pretty well-rounded grasp of what's happening, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the decision makers. <laughs> and I am the biggest advocate for our freelancers because I work at Amazon Publishing, so our model is that in-house it's all art directors and there are no designers. And so everyone we work with is a freelancer. And so I'm just the constant uh, advocate for the experience being on the receiving end of a lot of that feedback. And I like receiving when I'm the designer, pretty prescriptive feedback. Like after I've given a first round, that's like the best I can can reach on my own. Like I'm going to need a little bit of, um, input to be able to like pull it forward. And so I don't like sending notes back where I'm just leaving it in the designer's hands to fix the problem in a vague way. (laughs) Uh, And so I, I am someone who's, if I have the time and a clear vision, I really like to provide mood boards and concepts and like directions from the outset or, you know, several rounds in if we need to reset. Um, and I, I really push 
in-house to give the designers more turnaround time between rounds Um, (laughs) and and just like narrow down how much we're requesting to see in revisions. And and I don't always get my way. Sometimes there's, you know, people with demands. You're you're balancing kind of different people's priorities as well, aren't you? And and it must be invaluable having experience it yourself and being on the receiving end where you know what works and what doesn't work so I think that that ultimately it's got got to kind of strengthen you as an art director isn't it yeah and working with so many different art directors um who have very different approaches I kind of have developed my own little set of like best practices what I've learned works and what doesn't and I mean I'm myself so other people might not have the same preferences as me but I try to be like accessible um to the designers and and make them feel like it's a safe space for them to try and fail. Yeah, no, that's really important. Yeah, it's really good to hear. Um, ultimately, I mean, ultimately, being freelance or working in house, like both have their their benefits. But for you, what's the best aspect of of being an art director that you've found so far? Sometimes don't have the energy to be the designer. <laughs> I think I, I always know when I receive a brief, what I ideally would want the outcome to be, like which illustrator I would love to to work with or exactly kind of where I'd want it to sit on the shelf. But I, as a designer, wouldn't always be capable of um, getting it there. And it there is something like, I've always felt like I do have a strength of sort of building other people up or seeing like where the the solutions lie within a design that already already exists that is not mine. And so it's like a it's like a part of myself that I didn't always get to exercise when I was just a designer of being able to just work on the projects um from like a higher creative vantage point and not be so uh in the weeds (laughs) with like my own demons of like (laughs) of whether or not I had the ability to to solve the brief and so that's nice um and it's also nice to have the stability of a high-paying in-house job with benefits yeah Yeah, I'm sure Um, yeah yeah and a little bit more control over the workflow (laughs) day-to-day now it must be like yeah I really like the way you described that where you you might you might get a book um on, on your desk where you can visualize what you might want to do but not you know kind of thinking oh, i'm not sure i could do that myself but then knowing someone who'd be perfect for that job and that, that ability to collaborate to kind of achieve that i can imagine that being like a i don't know a really big thrill of, of the job i mean do you ever have that with freelance where you get the brief and feel as though there's someone that would have been maybe a better fit for it. Yes. <laughs> no, I probably shouldn't say that, should I? But um, yeah, 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 that does happen sometimes. But um, I guess I just see the challenge in it, I suppose, to try and push push myself out of my comfort zone as well. Because, you know, particularly if you're getting the same type of briefs kind of coming your way, I think it's a, a good way of of not feeling comfortable with that. And thinking, oh, actually, no, that doing this slightly scares me a little bit, but you know, I'll give it a crack, and 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 you might learn something along the way. So, um, I, I guess that's that's your job as a freelancer. You know, the person's obviously, you know, the art director's obviously got you involved for a reason. They obviously think you can do the job. So, I guess just trying to do it to the best of your ability with 
with with the skills you have is is um is what I I guess what I I tried to do, and I'm sure many other freelancers as well. Um, I, I can imagine the great benefit of working at a, a multitude of publishers like you've done is is getting to work like as we kind of previously said at different types of publishers, and it, it's some it's the one thing I wish I'd been able to do more of. Um, you know, some tend to be more literary, some tend to be more commercial. Uh, was this something you valued uh, working on different types of books and possibly happen, having to adapt the way you design? I definitely have my preferences for what types of books I want to work on. Um, and when I was younger, sometimes I would, I was appreciative of having that change from one month to the next because you you do you get a little bit bored or stagnant in the ways you're you're solving a brief if you're always being asked to do like a female memoir or something um so I was really grateful for that uh but I have increasingly been in house in more commercial imprints and my art directors would always be saying to me, you'll be grateful that you're developing this ability to design commercially because <laughs> this will like always keep you in business. And that is true that I definitely have an ability now to, to make a book feel big. Um, but I would say that it has not, it has not made me grow in love for designing big books. I, I still just want the abstract poetry book. Good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's good. Again, that it probably shows that you're, you've had to challenge yourself to kind of design in a different way to a different, you know, your in, go against your instincts as well. Sometimes some, uh, in, a, in a way, which I think is interesting with, with what we do, particularly when you're in house and you're having to, work on completely different types of books i think it's it's um it's different to any other field of design that i've that i've worked in for that for for, for that reason for sure yeah and i mean it it is it only serves me now being at a higher level because you have to be equipped to be kind of the sounding board on so many different types of books and 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 there's no one else in the room that's going to like give you the answer yeah. so I feel very capable of navigating yeah. that um, in a way that I certainly couldn't say five years ago I heard you describe working with books in a, in a really lovely way uh, once um, you said working on covers felt like the ideal combination of experimental illustration and conceptual problem solving culminating in an enduring and essential object. And I, I, I thought that was a great description of what yourself and others do really well. Um, but I've also read that you prefer describing yourself as more of a bricoler. Um, for you, does referring to yourself as, as a designer or illustrator sometimes feel too restrictive as a, as a description? I do think I have a designer's mind. Yeah. I often say that I'm a designer who writes and not a a writer who designs. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And illustrator definitely doesn't sit right with me. I think in my younger years, I was so enamored by illustration that I would attempt many different styles, um, like emulating people that I admired in my book covers and as I've gotten older, I've become more frustrated with that attempt because there are people who it's not just about honing like the material craft of it, but the entire way that you're 
composing an image, I think, um, requires that to be a special specialization. And I'm just too much of a generalist, I think, to claim that I can illustrate. But I, I'm much I'm much more comfortable saying I'm a designer in the book design world. And then when I think about writing, maybe say I'm a designer or a bricoler of <laughs> of various things. I mean, we all have imposter syndrome, right? <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all do. I think that's that's common throughout our industry and anyone kind of creatively, I guess. Um, which can be a can be a con, but it can be a pro sometimes as well. Um, um I mean, you don't confine yourself to just working on covers. Um, you, you also art direct Cantheus, uh, a Canadian literary journal, for for example. Um, do you find working on things like that a useful change of pace from, from working on covers? I mean, I do work... Sometimes I have worked in interiors, like I've done a lot of cookbooks and lifestyle books, and that's a nice change of pace... Um, I feel like maybe Zoe was talking about how, like, if she's sick, she can't do a cover, but she can do an interior. And that's sort of how I feel. It's, it's sort of a, a relaxing a way. Yeah. You're kind yeah. of using a different part of the brain almost. Mm -hmm. like, but then things like Cantheus um, are more, I think, I'm often trying to, to find space to pair my abilities with initiatives that I feel passionate about because it's, it's a low lift for me um, on some of these like partnerships, but it's my way of like continuing to find some extended purpose in my position as a designer. And, and that like sometimes comes through in personal projects or favors I'm doing for friends. I just want there to always still be a little bit of leftover time uh, to just have fun with like this thing that I can do because that's how I got started with design. It was just ad hocly um, when someone had a need. And, and I feel like often, especially when you're working freelance and you really need to, to earn money <laughs> to live, like it's so easy to overload yourself with the same type of project. Um, and then I, I've like woken up at times and thought like, I have all these other itch, itches for like other forms of expression and I don't have time for them. And I, because I have too, too many covers and I just, I kind of had to take a step back a few years ago and revisit like how I wanted to handle my creative life because it was getting to the point where like I was losing that that like sparkle yeah. <laughs> I like love it but it like it was too much yeah no, I can appreciate that yeah for sure I think yeah I think anyone who's freelance would be able to relate with that as well and I'm sure people in house as well because it sometimes it can feel a little bit uh, relentless I mean it's, it's difficult because it every every project's different every cover's different and every book's different but do, do you have a general process for working on a cover like I, I can imagine you know going back to our discussions of your time with Suzanne Dean and, and university and things like that I, I can imagine giving time for play and experimentation is is really important for you I definitely have a process um that's pretty regular and has always been the case um, 
I usually start with the brief and whatever is available of the manuscript. Um, and I kind of create notes that are really just based on like the language of the book and drawing inspiration from, uh, obviously we all do this, like the, the things that make it distinct from, from another book we've read. And then I kind of put that aside and do rabbit holes on Pinterest where I just like hold that feeling that I had from the voice of the author. And I'm just like, um, saving to an archive, just a random collection of visual inspiration. And then I start to sort of group it into separate mood boards as I see recurring patterns in what I've saved. Um, and I try to pair those with different passages in the book. Um, cause I'm trying to work through like a concept that is a decision that's both like style and content in some way. Um, and I usually don't start on the design until I've like narrowed down those mood boards to four to seven that I'm feeling are strong and I organize them like in the one that I think is strongest to weakest. And then I just like stare at them <laughs> <laughs> until I can kind of see like a sketch in my head of like how the, the type and image would fit together or what kind of style I, I need to like bring to it. Uh, I'm not really good at like entering um, a blank document and just pushing things around until like, brilliant yeah. strike. I, I have to go in with like a plan yeah. and then there'll be the odd, like halfway through working on those plans, you'll be up at like midnight lying in your bed after watching TV. And you're just, you'll just end up like enervated from not being able to completely click with the brief and you'll like push some stuff around yeah. and then it will be like the best thing you did. <laughs> Maybe. You, yeah. yeah. You know, when you're not thinking about it as well. Sometimes yeah. It, and things... I do, I do like, uh, when I'm really stuck on a brief, I'll go for a swim and the entire swim just like be ruminating. And then I'll like come out of the pool and I'll have like a good idea that that's usually a foolproof way of, of um breaking this just allowing yourself a little bit of time away yeah. and kind of the pressure of the moment so to speak to take yourself into a, a different space and then just allows your your brain to rest almost yeah it's, it's that feels like it's quite a common way that a lot of designers seem to kind of solve that that writer's block kind of moment I mean, um, I wish I was more spontaneous. I remember in uni looking at like a lot of the guys designing on screens next to me during like workshops and they were just like faffing about like they were just having a good time with it <laughs> and the girls were like I don't want to make it a binary but like a lot of us were like really overthinking it just overwrought <laughs> but just like it was just so um contrived sometimes that I kind of wish I just had that sort of pure uninhibited approach to design just yeah just playing just and seeing mm -hmm. what happens yeah i think it's a good time to talk about your your book um that you, that you wrote um again this is something that gives you a unique perspective on publishing and and what we do um your book secrets came out last year and is, is a collection of biographical vignettes alongside your illustrations, charts, photographs, and visual artifacts. 
and and the book is is part memoir, part travelogue, and and bicycles are always part of the story, whether literally or or metaphorically. Um, how how did the book start out? Was it was it intentional or or almost by accident? Because I know you're an enthusiastic list maker and uh-huh. collector. Did it just? <laughs> it, was it something that just kind of evolved over time? It was an accident. Yes. Yeah. Um, or I should say all of my projects start out as other things and then become a book. I just, <laughs> it just because they get too large and too long and I have too much to say. Um, I was writing another book, which will come out next year. And I had been doing that for a couple of years and needed to take a break, like was hoping for more feedback on it. And so I thought, oh, I'll, I'll do like a zine or a chap book, like some, some smaller project that's more, um, visually led and maybe I'll enter that in competitions or just feel like a project that I can do in a few months instead of a few years um, and get my feet wet. And yeah, I, I it started out as a list and I was like, I'm just going to have like this list of things related to bicycles that have happened to be my life. Don't know why. I just <laughs> thought of doing it. And then um, I don't really remember if I knew it was going to become book length before the pandemic. But I remember like the day we kind of got sent home from work I was for what I thought was going to be two weeks. I was like, great, I'm going to use this time to wrap up this project. (laughs) (laughs) And then as, and then, you know, eight months later, I had a book or first draft of a book. (laughs) At least you were were productive through the uh, pandemic. (laughs) Yeah, for a little bit of it. Um, And then, and then, I mean, I obviously... I'm serious about my work. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like effortlessly a book just appeared in front of me. Um, (laughs) But I, I'm a, an avid reader and I have a lot of friends that are editors and agents and writers. And so I have like a, a pretty good grasp on what is a book and what isn't a book Um, when it like coalesces with, what my brain is thinking and what I want to express. So there's, there is some, some level of awareness about what I can claim could be (laughs) sellable or not. (laughs) And so that kind of motivated, motivates me to persist on projects for many years without other eyes on them and feel like, okay, maybe I'll be able to find a place for this in the world. Yeah. Um, was it, I mean, for people who haven't seen the book, it's a it's a lovely little object. Um, was it important to you that the book is is very visual and like experimental in form? Yes, and now as I've written more and I'm on to like my third manuscript, I part of me just wants to do away with the imagery because I have such a love of the the words and sometimes feel like the visuals can be a distraction but I feel like my writing will always include these kind of design elements because I have such a love for like I just have such a love for visuals and I want to like stuff them in there in some way yeah and Um, that that book particularly that the 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 visual aspect worked like really well and like really harmoniously with with the words as well you couldn't have one without the other almost Mm -hmm. but it is it's strange because like the writing process is much lengthier than the creating the visuals and 
I can't really start creating the visuals until I have like a really solid draft or two. Um, and then from what I've said, I'm sort of in the visuals are like being inspired by what I've written and then the, I'll make a visual and it will inspire the text and there'll be this sort of like, um, rotation that happens between the two as they dialogue. But it's, it's this sort of like, um, like delay in, um, the joy of the final product that I'm not used to when I'm working on a cover because I can see so clearly what the book is going to look like really yeah. early on. Like I know the title, I know what the cover should be. I know where I want the visuals to sit on the page, but it will be like three years of not <laughs> being able to execute that or, and then like maybe another three years before someone else is holding it. And so it, it can be like a little bit, um, do you feel like impatient? Ten, like, yeah, I become effort. really impatient uh, a little bit. And then when you're holding it, by the time you're holding it, you're kind of over it because it's been so long. But it is like the most amazing feeling ever. One I that I imagine. got often in uni when I'd like book bind my projects. Like to hold a book is like the best, best experience. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, whenever you talk to cover designers, that that first moment of of holding a book where you've designed the cover mm -hmm. feels special enough but for it to be a book which you, you've written as well it must it must be tenfold as well that that feeling of wow this this thing I've done that's really exciting yeah I love it I mean I love it more than anything else on <laughs> earth <laughs> but really it's nice. a, you know it's it, it's pay, it's it's um like something that I'll only maybe experience a few times in my life with great gaps in between. So you got to find other things to, to love in the intro. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, I guess we've got to talk about the, the cover of your books itself being a podcast about book cover design. Um, firstly, the, de the decision to design it yourself was there ever a temptation to hand it over to someone else? Because you you often hear designers finding it really hard to design something for themselves. Was, was that ever a factor or did you just like, no, I'm, I'm doing it myself? I knew I was going to do it myself. I wrote, I wrote an article for Spine about this um, and how like, I know it's not a good idea. Like I am not the best book designer. I know that if someone else designed it, it would probably be better. Um, I don't know if I would have been satisfied with it, even if it was a better design, because the content is so particular in it, like the um, metaphors and abstract imagery that it's calling up, that there, that often when I'm designing someone else's cover, you're just picking like some motif in the book and you think, well, that'll work. Um, but for me, like my, the, the kind of symbols that I'm, um, that I put into my work are very specific. And like, I needed the cover to be the epitome of like what I believed the book was trying to say. And I, I felt like that's something that I, I doubt that someone that another designer would get, get at quite quickly. But then I also just feel like there's something a little bit expected, like people knowing that I'm a, a book designer. I just didn't want the, for the rest of my life to have to, um, take compliments on this book and then like 
asterisk it with, I didn't design this cover. Like, I feel like I just wanted something that I had full ownership over. Like I was in charge of the files. I told the printers how to like make it work. Like I was part of every part of the process and I love that. And I didn't want to like give up control on any of it, (laughs) even if it, I didn't want the project to suffer. That's the the scary thing, right? Like the months and months of like torment over your ability to, to do this thing right. But I could see it no other way. And I, I will continue to feel that into my future projects. Did you, I mean, did you put yourself under a lot of pressure when doing the cover? Because I know if it was, if it was me doing a cover for my own book, I'd be like putting the weight of the world on my shoulders. I just can't imagine how it must have felt when you were doing it. I like started the process by truly trying to define what I thought was the best cover design in the world for all the, all of time. Like I started by going through my archives and going through the um, websites of every designer I admire and making like a giant printout of what I felt were like my favorite covers. And I think like as covers come out each year, like there are trends and you can get really excited about new work when you're like, whoa, they're doing something so different this is exciting and I can really appreciate um, the cleverness of this. But that's very different than trying to like consolidate yourself and your taste into like what it, what truly do you believe like is aligned with like your, your, your own like visual stylings that's out there in the world. And I think that was like an interesting exercise, which of course I think would change with the years regardless, but I was really trying to like create my own bar for my project based on like what I felt like historically was what I, what I, what I hadn't um, ever like lost enthusiasm for in covers. And that was like a little bit helpful to, to note that a lot of my favorite covers are really understated and almost, almost nothing. Like I, I love like wave books, their covers are all like, uncoated white paper with just black text and and I and it's like kind of ironic to be a book designer and love covers that are almost nothing <laughs> but I I think that the less design the better when it comes to reflecting my own work and sort of what I want on my bookshelves what was the reason for using two different covers was was that your choice or was that the pub, separate publisher's choice so the hardcover is um it's like stock with like an emboss and that is the world edition and then the paperback gonna, which I'm is gonna, like i'm gonna hold it up yeah even. you have e- the world edition <laughs> even even though no one can see what i'm holding up but, um uh, that's published by unnamed press in la and then i requested um a separate Canadian edition with a, a Canadian publisher that I have long worked with, Book Hug. Um, they were interested in the project and I I really wanted an edition for Canada that was like catering to that market and with a publisher that understood um, how books work because yeah. <laughs> it's and I, because typically um american books or british books just get exported to bookstores in canada and people buy them but it's like a very different market it's a small population um i felt like 
I just wanted some like kind of effort put on where I'm from. And it was yeah. exciting because like that book hug, like it does a really great job at selling me and putting me forth for awards. And I was in like the local newspapers. And so my, my nan could get really excited and brag to all of her <laughs> friends. Um, and so I wanted like a, a separate edition with a separate cover. And that was just pure indulgence on my part that I was like, why would I have two books with the same cover when I could have two books that feel completely different? <laughs> like <laughs> no. more is more. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really nice. Yeah. Uh, what did the approval process look like for the covers? Did did you get a lot of freedom, not only because you were designing it, but it was also your book? It's my approach that like, I would love to be art directed. Like, I don't feel like I should be the final say. And um, so I did present several options, different options to the Canadians and the Americans. And then they sort of picked, I, I was kind of relieved that they picked taking, and I was like I feel good about this kind of taking the decision out of your hands almost yeah, yeah and there were some like things that like the the world edition that's like this fleshy color with green we were playing with like infinite different color combinations but ultimately that was ultimately we were constrained in the production process um based on like what cardstock was available and what pantones you could really print on that where you'd retain like the, the color as it's like being applied to like the cardstock underneath. Um, and so that was like, there, there was kind of only one answer at the end of the day that I that felt right for me. And I, I'm glad that it, it, we weren't doing like a four color book because I think that would have like haunted me having to make that decision. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was it like seeing the, the relationships between editors and and agents and and how that fed into cover decisions because i guess you've only seen it from one side before but kind of did it give you another view on the process almost i've i have felt like i've always been like on the inside of that process um working with small presses there's often not an art director and so i'm speaking directly with the editor and sometimes with small presses the only opinion that matters is the author. So they're like copying and pasting emails from the authors. And I'm like having to like receive that feedback. (laughs) And then um, being in-house, like I'm working directly with the editors. And so, and they're telling me everything the agents and authors are saying. So I think that that experience has always helped me when I've been a freelancer, because I understand like what's going on behind closed doors. Um, and I try to be, I think when you're, you're just the designer, it's easy to get really irritated with everyone that isn't just agreeing with your genius. Um, and I feel like that's true. I would love, I would love designers to just design the cover and have that be final. But I, I try to remember, I mean, I try to remember from the author agent side that ultimately like they will have this book with them longer than anyone who's making it. Like this book is going to be in their house with their families and friends forever. And so like you want them to feel good about it, even though you really also want to strong arm them into picking something cool. (laughs) Um, The in-house conversations are a little bit harder, a little bit harder to stomach, I think generally because marketing and sales have 
their own formula for assessing what sells and what doesn't that is very disjointed from, I think, the world of design where you're seeing what's being pushed on Instagram and Pinterest and all of the design blogs. Like you kind of know what's really cool. And because you're seeing it everywhere, you really believe like this is what the people want. But marketing and sales are seeing the numbers. Like (laughs) they're seeing like what actually, like who actually is buying the books at the end of the day and their interpretations of um, why that is often I think unfairly comes down to cover when I think there's a lot of other factors, but cover receives the brunt of the the assessment of of like, yeah. So I think that those conversations, um, when I went into designing my own book, I didn't, those conversations didn't happen because I already knew the voices in my head from all the different like players and I preemptively made decisions on their behalf. Yeah. I really love that point you made as well. Uh, And it may be, you understand it more than most because you're because you're an author as well. But that the fact that the author's going to have that book, you know, and it, it's going to be the fo- their focus a lot longer than it is going to be the designers. So, yeah, always kind of keeping keeping like I guess keeping ourselves grounded as well as designers. Sometimes that it, it might not necessarily it might not necessarily be the best thing for our portfolios, but ultimately we're trying to do the best. We're trying to kind of serve the author essentially and and do justice to this thing they've created. I mean, it's, it's sad to say maybe, but like if I can get one good killed cover out of a brief, like once I hit the killed cover, I'm okay with whatever happens with the project because I just want to know that I'm capable of doing something (laughs) that I respect. (laughs) Do you you find, I don't know, do you... You find comfort in there and I still haven't lost it. I haven't lost the ability. Yes. <laughs> okay. I feel so moody if I've spent like a week working on a, on a brief and I haven't got to anything that I like. Like, even if it's like a slam dunk for the publisher, I just lose some part of myself. <laughs> I get just really unpleasant to be around. And I mean, the majority of my work online is are killed covers. Like, I can't say that a lot of the approved ones I feel like arrived at a better place than, um, that first random thing that I did. Yeah. Uh, it's funny the the approach that different designers take to kill covers. Cause I know that you feature some on your website and you know, like you like you said that and things like your Instagram. And and loads and loads of other designers do that as well. And I've I've always kind of wrangled with myself what to do with all these kill covers. Cause like the, you know, the bulk of the work we do is it just goes unseen essentially, doesn't it? And it it, it I've I'm always torn between whether to show them or not because on one hand it seems a shame because there's just all this work which never sees the light of day and it's just sat on a hard drive somewhere doing nothing, uh, gathering dust. But then I, I have done it in the past sometimes put, putting up a kill cover on Instagram but then I've kind of after a while I've deleted it off there because sometimes I see it and it kind of irks me that it didn't get picked and I just feel like I get more like I should be more like you really where I should I should just kind of enjoy it for what it is and as well as the thing I did and um and get some enjoyment out of it so maybe I need to kind of revisit my my thoughts on on whether or not the show kill covers well you know I think being on the receiving end of freelancers pdfs um and then seeing the feedback that goes out to them there are so many covers that are immediately stunners that you just think this is like incredible. This needs to be a book. And we'll say that in our meetings, but they might just get the practical feedback of like, 
none of these are working or this other one is working. And then it taints our whole perception of what we thought was good when really like it has nothing to do with us. (laughs) It just has to do with like the marketability for that particular project. And even just the, um, preferences of certain in-house people that has nothing to do with like the book at all. And just like, they don't like purple or they've seen too many side profiles of heads or something. So yeah, I think it's good to have like an internal compass for like what you are proud of and what your like aspirations are each year and your growth as a designer and like kind of tune out as much as possible, like the feedback coming from the publishers. I think that's a really good insight. Um, There's a, there's a moment in your book when you're in Kenya um, as as part of a, a field research course that you you were doing, and your your dad comes to visit, and uh, and along with a friend, you all visit the, the Maasai Mara, and there's a, there's a section one of the one of the sections where you describe about both you and your dad being avid amateur photographers. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but later on, your friend asks you whether you you've ever considered putting the camera down and just being present in the moment and um and in the book you just simply answer no um (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, just like you refuse to read a book uh, without a pencil in hand um do you think that inclination that you always had to capture something or make a note or an observation was probably without without knowing it was the perfect training ground to to become a book cover designer because I, I can imagine a lot of the people listening can relate to some of those habits that that we that we just mentioned. I think yes, there's absolutely a through through line between like kind of holding up crop marks to a scene, yeah. <laughs> and how you're able to like conceptualize the composition of a cover. Um, but I think beyond that, and I mean, maybe I think I have I have a lot of thoughts on my identity as an artist, and I'm not totally sure if any other artist would agree with this, but I feel as though my ability to like connect with the world and experience it requires some level of transformation between it entering me um, and me kind of putting my stamp on it before it exiting. And I feel that way when I'm photographing um, things on my travels when I'm, I think just deciding like any kind of decision in how I'm organizing my days, there is something about it that I'm trying to make beautiful and like wondrous and books are really a great world, um, as an artist, if you're, if you want to make money to be that kind of self because it's so much pure a form of, of like selling something like you're working with like a vessel of like the human experience as your like point of inspiration. And then you're translating that into like a distilled image. And so it like that is like retained much more so than if you're working on like an ad campaign or, or, you know, some like disposable packaging, Um, And so I think that like fire in me that is in life is so readily harnessed in my profession. Yeah. Yeah. And I I can imagine that kind of is mirrored as well. Um, What you described there about how you're processing something that's kind of coming into you and then having to kind of repackage that out. 
I guess the the way the way you probably read and analyze books like naturally lends itself to translate the written word into something visual as well. That's definitely something that I I think is a muscle that has been like strengthened since starting uni until now. Like I think I am a really emotional designer or I find that I the the thing that like I need to tap into to to make a cover is like resonating with some something emotional within the text and that doesn't mean like I'm crying over some trauma but it's like that feeling of like the words like filling you up and then using that like intuitive sense of like how that should spill out onto the cover like there's just something about looking at a cover and like knowing whether or not it has like a little bit of the essence of the book and to be able to do that you kind of have to like take a deep breath of it in and like hold it in you until you can find a way to like (laughs) blow it out. Um, So I do think like over the years, I've gotten a lot better at interpreting that emotional feeling in a lot of different um, like graphic devices. I like, and it's always trying to, it's, it's always that attempt to like, to expand that toolkit. Cause that's the hardest thing, right. To stay like on top of, um, the like art trends and it's, that's the thing that I think is I'm weakest at as I get older is like, I'm not always like in a room with people over their shoulder, seeing like the new tricks they have. And it's, it can be hard on your own to, to work through like how to get there. Just one kind of slightly random thing from your, from your book that that I enjoyed. I love and- that you've read this. It's <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna I had to read it. Yeah. Um and a, a name cropped up that I wasn't expecting, and that was um Neil Buchanan of uh of Art Attack fame. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and 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 for those uh, I I guess it was inevitable that his name would crop up eventually on this podcast. But um f- for those who are probably confused and, and don't know, um Art Attack was a was a nineties British kids TV show that I'm sure listeners of a certain um generation enjoyed is that there weren't many kind of art shows for kids on TV back then. Um but one of your entries in, in the book describes a time when you were back home in Canada as a child and and tuning into Art Attack and watching Neil create one of his big art attacks and and this particular one he uh, he was um creating a, a giant bicycle i just i thought i had to mention it just because it, it sent me down a bit of a rabbit hole on youtube of watching back old episodes of, of art attack because I, I it's one of those things where i'd i'd completely forgotten about art attack yeah. until i read it in the into the book and i was like ah and um but those shows must have been really important for kind of young people who kind of had access to it because if, if you were a like a creatively minded kid there weren't many things like that in the kind of popular culture so i i loved i loved that 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 came up in the book it was it was one that really made me smile it's so true that like i really can think of so few um resources i had as a child to be exposed to art and i mean i i haven't rewatched most of art attack so i can't be sure but when i think back to it it seemed like almost all of his art involved pva glue oh yeah that was an essential and like yeah like paper bashing some cardboard and then painting it and so i i think it was it was um 
it was like, he, he was like all about making art out of like your everyday the environment. Objects. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that is, is such a, a nice jumping off point that like you might not have access to a lot of things, but like, look how much you can do with these like basic these basic supplies. And, and for sure that was, that's such a meditative, a meditative show. He's like amongst all those like giant art <laughs> supplies fine. in that studio. <laughs> and even when you're like, you know, when he's building those scenes that they're going to eventually show like an aerial view of, you're like, you can't wait to see what it is. And he's, he's just like him folding like clothing and like going and gathering things from towns. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, that's amazing. It's so good. I mean, I, I'm going to make sure that I'm going I'm to, <laughs> put in the show notes a link to youtube where you can watch this this bicycle being unveiled because (laughs) there's probably lots of people listening to the podcast around the world who are just really really confused right now (laughs) but um no i i really i really enjoyed uh reading your book you know genuinely because i think you know i I appreciate the cycling isn't wasn't always necessarily the forefront of the book it was it was quite often a vehicle just to kind of carry you through mm-hmm. through the text but um as someone who's currently also uh, trying to teach their child to uh-huh. cycle and uh, the way you described um what what cycling can often bring a person but kind of it's that first quite often that first element of, of freedom yeah. but i i'd really encourage anyone to to get themselves a copy because i think it's a, it's a brilliant a brilliant a brilliant collection of work really um and I think you mentioned earlier as well that you have a, another book in the works, which is out in 2025, was it? Um, I, I'm not sure how much you can say about the book, but it, is it um, is it similar in the same way? It's, it's quite experimental in form again. Yes, it's um, also creative nonfiction. I hate using the word memoir because it makes it sound like I think I have something in my life (laughs) worth telling. But yes, it's about um, modern love, I would say. And it because I wrote it around the same time as Ciclette's, it still uses imagery quite similarly, like interspersed throughout um, and similar writing style, heavier content. But I feel like as I continue to write, I get more inventive or feel comfortable kind of figuring out other ways of going about the book form. So I'm sure hopefully if there's future books that you'll see more evolution of that um, approach to cool. writing. Brilliant. Well, I really look forward to seeing, to seeing that down the line. Um, just quickly back to publishing in our industry. Is there like a, an issue about industry that you spend time thinking on and, and maybe something we should all think about about more. Um, I, I've heard you say that you think about arbiters when it comes to the politics of, of cover design. Could you explain that f- further a little bit for, for people listening? Well, I mean, I think you've had a lot of guests who've who've you know, highlighted some of the biggest issues in publishing, like diversity and pay. So I won't go into detail about that, but it's obviously on everyone's radar. We we speak about it often. Um, a huge part of my job is building cases for why designers should be paid more um, and how we can increase like the diversity of what kind of um, artists we're working with, but also how we can foster 
like new talent from a younger age. But when it comes to like decisions around what becomes a book and how that book is packaged, I feel as though like we're kind of on this cusp cusp where there's like obviously a lot of AI imagery um, getting interspersed in our stock sites. And there's like sometimes like algorithmic sort of apps that get made of like, look, we can make a cover too. And I sort of feel like I hope, and I try to bring up these kinds of points within my office of like, I feel like we should be focusing more on like what competitive advantage a book offers that no other um, vehicle does. Because I think there's a lot of things that no longer belong in a book, like encyclopedias. Those shouldn't be in a book anymore. Like (laughs) that should be like updated online in Wikipedia. And I think there's a lot of like hybrid um, forms of books digitally that have been coming out where it's like, can a book be an Instagram story? Can a book be like a 20 minute read on your way to work? Like, I think there's this push for like, how can we make books like look like other things, (laughs) other things that people are familiar with and that are short and accessible and will keep uh, readership up. And I'm more interested in talking about like, what of the past did the book offer that we need to protect? Like, what is it about, um, this relationship you have with a print object where you have to kind of sit in one place and spend a long time focused on something that has no flash and like, uh, requires like, your full attention and and your full openness to another mind and another story and that immersion into something that's so like pure. And, and I, and I kind of, I want people to read. I think reading is important and it's happening in all different forms, but like, I also want there to be some sort of like education and championing of like this completely unrepeatable sort of format that like is distinctly human and non-digital and and I and I think book design um has the opportunity to like convince people of of why to turn turn away from what they're looking at and turn towards this thing sitting in like a store and it's not so much like what do we, what are we putting on our covers? Though I obviously with thumbnails and things being sold online, like we have those pressures for the sameness, um, of something that appeals like universally to the masses. And I think there's definitely a lot of pushback that designers have to bring into those meeting rooms so that the arbiters of like what sells start to question, like, their gut on like, and allow like a little bit more freedom. But I think it goes beyond that into like connecting with the contents of books and saying like, this shouldn't look like everything else because it, if we're publishing, it should be like nothing else that exists. And it should feel like that. Like you should be selling it as a thing that someone like has to encounter only here. Um, that's a little bit more philosophical than I think often day to day we, we get to in our work, but I, I feel like at Amazon, it's a place that the conversations for me, uh, feel to come up a a lot more because we're dealing with like such huge numbers and, um, 
like some fusions with like the digital world. And so to, to carve out space for like the, the, the old way of doing things is like a little bit more, um, at the forefront of my mind than maybe if I was at vintage books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tree, thanks so much for talking with me. I think it's been really fascinating. I think you've got a really unique kind of perspective into, into, into what we do. And, um, I can't wait to see your, your new book that comes out in 2025 and, and anything else that, you know, comes along the way down the line as well. Oh, well, thank you for creating this podcast. It's such a lovely companion on my commute, listening <laughs> to like fellow like peers in the industry and, and being reminded of like why we do the work we do. Thanks so much to Tree for speaking with me. Her, her work is so unique and she's got such a special way of speaking about her outlook on creativity. To see a selection of Tree's work, visit treeabraham.com and follow her on Instagram at treex3. Links for those are also in the show notes, along with a few other things we discussed throughout. I highly recommend Tree's book, Seaclets, so get yourself a copy if you haven't already. And keep your eyes peeled for her upcoming book in 2025. Thanks so much for listening to season one of Cover Meeting. I've been really overwhelmed by the countless messages and emails I've had from many of you saying how much you've enjoyed these conversations. This is the last episode of 2023. I'll be recording a new batch next year and we'll start putting them out in September 2024. Starting a podcast has been such a steep learning curve, so please get in touch if you think there's anything that can be improved or if there's an area you'd like to hear spoken about more on an upcoming episode. I'm open to any ideas, so get in touch with me over email or social media. Thanks again to all of the guests in season one, and a special thanks to James Ede of beheard.org.uk for helping turn this podcast into a reality. A special thanks also to James Edgar, Josh Fathers, James Jones, Katie Cowan, and Ben Tallon for words of wisdom and support in making this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please follow Cover Meeting wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you can take the time, please leave a rating or review as it really helps. Follow Cover Meeting on Twitter, Instagram, and now threads at Cover Meeting Pod for news about upcoming episodes. Cover Meeting was hosted by Steve Leard and produced by James Ede of beheard.org.uk. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you join again soon for another episode. <laughs>